This is Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm Dr. Celine Galgich, and I'm a clinical psychologist who works extensively with OCD. And I'm Dr. Victoria Miller, but you can call me Tori. And I'm a clinical psychologist who works with young people, including those with OCD. Through our shared professional experience, we've found that effective treatment of OCD requires commitment, creativity, and the recognition that things can sometimes get a little messy. They sure can. We want to empower clinicians to be able to work with their patients in new ways to treat OCD with confidence. Today, we are talking with none other than Dr. Jonathan Grayson, who is a licensed psychologist, director of the Grayson Centre in LA, and adjunct clinical assistant professor of psychiatry and the behavioral sciences at the University of Southern California. Dr. Grayson has been specializing in the treatment of OCD for more than 40 years. He is the recipient of the Patty Perkins Lifetime Achievement Award. He is also the author of an award-winning self-help book, Freedom from Obsessive Compulsive Disorder, a personalized recovery program for living with uncertainty. He also has the distinction of possibly being the first professional to run a yearly OCD camping trip. In the first part of this episode, you'll hear us talk with the very engaging Dr. Grayson about the concept of uncertainty and how to get better without knowing. Dr. Grayson shares insights into how to talk with clients about uncertainty and demonstrates how to integrate this concept into treatment. Let's get started. Thank you so much for joining us and welcome. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Let's jump in by getting a bit of an understanding about how you found your way into working with OCD. I was just pausing for a second because I thought maybe I should give the short version. (laughs) (laughs) But the short version is by accident because when I was applying to graduate schools, I applied to all the good schools and I had a safety school and I got into the safety school. And it turned out I'd accidentally applied to a good school. I didn't realize it was a good school. So I, but I, so I ended up going there where I worked with a person, uh, Tom Borkovic. But so I got there by accident. If I'd had my choice, I would have gone to one of the other schools, but you know, I did that. And that ended up me getting a very good internship. And in my internship, the one rotation I did not want to do, because we kind of got to pick, but we had to work it out. I did not want to do the alcohol rotation. I just did not want to work with addiction, and I got stuck on that one. And on that one, I learned everything that I then later used to form the goal support groups for OCD. So a lot of my early rep was based on that. And when I was done my internship, we were going to stay in the east coast of the U.S. and the northeast. And I didn't particularly want to go back to Philadelphia, where I was from. And like the only good job was in Philadelphia. And it was working with this woman, Edna Foa, on her first OCD. Mm. If I had control over my life, there are three times I would have made decisions that would have put me someplace else other than where I am today. So I like the accidents because I like to think I would have been happy elsewhere, but I like this outcome. I fell into it that way. Sliding doors moments. Tell us about Philadelphia. It's a great city. I mean, if you lived in the States, you would know things about Philadelphia, though, like Whenever Philadelphia wins a championship, the fans are likely to be tearing down phone poles and stuff like that. Or there was one car that got flipped over. Whoa. <laughs> but the news person said exactly what I this is why I'm living in LA, but I saw it. The news person saying exactly what I'm thinking. Why was he parked in Broad Street on the day of the game? It's like <laughs> he had it coming. Of course your car's getting flipped <laughs> they should over. Know better. <laughs> 
my wife came was coming home when the baseball team had just literally won the series as she's driving home. And she's a little worried because people are pouring into the streets and she's going to be driving through part of it because of where her apartment was and location to the street they're going. So I just gave her the clear advice. I said, you need to honk your horn wildly. This is not to tell the people to get away from you. This is to tell the people you know. If you don't honk your horn wildly, they have to bang on your car to let you know that you <laughs> won. So it was a great city. You just had to know certain rules about it. It sounds like a very passionate city. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was passionate. You know, I'm in LA now, and it's kind of weird because they win a championship. And they're going like, yay, we won the championship. That's great. <laughs> Like, doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I think flipping cars is something my husband's going to do if the Boston Celtics win the title this year in basketball. <laughs> so you found your way back to Philadelphia, but what made you stay working with OCD? So it's not what you planned, but something made you stay. What was it? I've only been working with OCD since 1978. <laughs> only. <laughs> Sometimes I think to myself, isn't it kind of weird that you like doing this, which in some ways seems like the same thing for this long? Like, isn't that messed up? It never becomes clear why it's messed up. Maybe I'll change. I just really like working with it. I find it's a very philosophical disorder. That is, people with OCD are asking all the important philosophical questions. What's the nature of God? Who am I? How can I live happily in a world where I or my children might die at any time? What's the nature of good? What's the nature of evil? And the only difference between somebody with OCD and a great philosopher is they actually want an answer. Because right there are college professors who spend their entire career studying a single philosopher because his philosophy is so complex it takes a lifetime to understand it. But I enjoy that because although we have a core treatment for OCD, with every presentation it has its own special things I have to pay attention to. And so it's fun. Yeah. That's becoming clearer and clearer, which make it very nuancy when working with the condition. Tori and I find that a lot when we hit hurdles in treatment or clients get stuck. You kind of have to veer off the textbook, which I mean, we do a lot of the time anyway, in a sense of going, of meeting the client where they're at and exploring some of those things with them. So that leads us into this idea of dealing with uncertainty because it's often the end goal of treatment. Well, I guess end goal in a sense of we're really teaching clients how to live with uncertainty because we do live in an uncertain world. Is it okay with you if I read a small excerpt from your book? Because it's something that we really love. We wanted to flesh that out with you today, but also want our listeners to be able to experience this because we really love it. So I'm just going to read this quickly. Well, I won't speed through it too much, but anyway. Okay. So... John has written a book, if you don't know, called Freedom from Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. We highly recommend it. It's for the client, but it's wonderful for clinicians as well. I think it's for both. Absolutely. It's a beautiful text. It really is. You're a beautiful writer, John. So John says, so are your perceptions accurate? Do you know anything for certain? Can you get better without knowing? The answer to the last is yes. Knowing is too difficult. Therefore, let's focus not on what you know, but on what you can guess. Throughout the book, I'll be asking you to make your best guess about different situations. Coming up with the best guess means you don't have to be sure of your answer. This can be very hard because you want to feel that your guess is right. If it were right, it wouldn't be a guess. 
And then he gives an example. We'll flesh that out in a minute. And then he goes on to say, learning to guess and to live with the consequences of guessing will be the purpose of this program. Can you get better without knowing? I think is really sums it up beautifully in terms of what we're helping our clients to do. Yeah, because you said something that I would modify. You said getting to the uncertain part is the end point of treatment. And recently I've been working with somebody, we might be working on a new book maybe, but we're now saying that exposure and response prevention, ERP, is not the gold standard of treatment. Tell us more. Yes, please do. If we had a screen here, I'd be putting this up because I would say what it's got to be is ERP plus gold. But here's the thing. That looks awkward because we have initials and we have a name. You happen to know the chemical symbol for gold? I should. My father was a jeweler. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, it's AU. So me and Liz, Liz McInvale, we've been pushing that the gold standard is ERP plus AU, gold. AU also happens to stand for accepting uncertainty. Hey, okay. Mm -hmm. It was torturous to get there. But... <laughs> That's pretty neat. But here's the thing. I see many treatment failures because that wasn't the goal of treatment. Because if I don't like the idea that me or my family can die at any time, first to do a lot of exposure of me thinking about my family dying and all that, why is that going to be okay if I don't accept that possibility? And so for me, the prerequisite to treatment is, are you going to be willing to learn to accept uncertainty? Because if you can just accept uncertainty in treatment, it's learning to accept uncertainty, and I think that's critical. And the thing is that accepting uncertainty has a few difficult parts to it. Everybody makes acceptance sound so great and wonderful, like, you know, it's happy land. And so the truth <laughs> about acceptance is that it sucks. Yeah, it does. It really does. Acceptance is the second best life, because what people are doing is denial. And of course, psychologists always say denial, and the trouble with that is like, what the heck is denial? Because you almost said that my spouse died and you're telling them I'm in denial. Like, why do you think I'm sad? They're dead. Yeah. But denial takes place whenever I compare reality to some fantasy. So in the case of death, it's really stark. The statement of denial is life would be better if they were still here. I might feel that way, but that will never happen. And denial can be way more subtle. So in the onset of COVID, so many people are in denial in the sense that, you know, it's hitting, everything's locked down and people are like, well, this can't last more than a few weeks. Now, it's already been said to us, it's probably two years before we can find a vaccine. So it's like, obvious, this is lasting a long time. But it's like, no, it can't. That's a statement of denial. So moving from denial to acceptance warning is that I allow anything to happen. And some people's response is to literally try not to think. So if I ask any parent, what would you do if your kid died? That would be the end. I mean, it would be horrible, but it wouldn't be the end, especially if you have another kid. What are you going to do for them? So a client of mine once said, you can't do what you won't imagine. They didn't mean you can do anything you imagine. It meant if you won't even imagine, you can't do it. So to cope with uncertainty is to say, if the worst happens, how would you try to cope in a positive way? Not a guarantee you will, but how would you try to cope? And we get rid of suicide. I kill myself. It's like, no, no, you're condemned to life because... Committing suicide is literally saying it is a way of not thinking about it. So you know, I would ask somebody if they said, oh, you know, I'm afraid, terrified of cancer. Well, what would you go if you, know, you go to the doctor and he says, I think you need a biopsy, you might have cancer. I'd freak out. I'd be screaming. Okay, you're at the doctor's office. How long are you screaming for? How do you get home? 
Are you eating dinner today? Are you going to sleep? Probably not. What are you doing tomorrow? By day, and even though we have somebody who this has been their nightmare, and that sounds like this is a horrifying thing to do, although it obviously doesn't cure them, most people feel a little better. And not because like we've cured them, but suddenly this unspeakable thing, oh, there's something I can do. And this feeling of acceptance begins with depression. But if you look at the person on the cusp of denial or depression, the denial is like, no, it can't happen. It can't happen. But they know it can. I think that's a prerequisite for how we begin treatment. I really won't have people start doing exposure because for me, this is the goal of treatment. So what's the point of doing treatment if they haven't accepted it? There's a podcast I had done. So I mentioned your pedagogy, and I did a podcast on the OCD stories. Oh, we love the OCD stories. He had been afraid of going crazy. He was in his late 40s and he had had technically good treatment. He had success in life. He was married. He had a successful career, but this thing tortured him. And in our first session, I was saying, well, our goal is to have you risk going crazy, which made him crazy. He'd been spending his whole life not doing that. And most people, I think it takes one to three sessions for them to convince. It literally took three months for us going through like, well, first of all, your rituals don't work. Like this thing is not going to prevent you from going psychotic. And we went through all these things. And, and over time, he accepted it. And that was about three or four years ago. And he's not, I mean, he has some OC things. That problem's completely gone. And the only difference between me and someone else is I said, let's deal with the potential worst, whereas everybody else was just like, it's low odds, you know, and the trouble is people want low odds to be no odds. That's right. Yeah. We find in a sense of clients hang on to every ounce of tool or technique or whatever it is you might do as a form of reassurance in the end. And we often ask our clients, are you reluctantly willing to work towards this in a sense of that idea of embracing that uncertainty? Because it really is pivotal and that struggle is painful and very long lasting. But as soon as that struggle is dropped and you're right, it does start with that depression, that sense of grief and loss. Magic happens, though, at the same time. Thanks for joining us for part one of our chat. Join us next episode as we conclude the conversation. You've been listening to Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. This podcast is brought to you by Melbourne Wellbeing Group, a psychology practice based in Melbourne with a special focus on treating OCD. To find out more, head to our website, melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. All one word, that's melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Breaking the Rules, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Celine Galgetch. And I'm Tori Miller. And we'll be back next episode with more reasons to convince you to get messy. Have fun and break the rules. rules. <laughs>